Welcome to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with you all now. Thank you so much. A lot to talk about. Breaking news from the last hour or so. It's always fun we get to break some news here in the Freedom Hut for you. And... Uh, in this case, it has to do with sanctuary cities and Trump administration executive orders. Here's the latest from the Associated Press. A federal judge blocked any attempt by the Trump administration to withhold funding from sanctuary cities that do not cooperate with U.S. immigration authorities, saying the president has no authority to attach new conditions to federal spending. U.S. District Judge William Oreck, an Obama appointee, issued the preliminary injunction in two lawsuits, one brought by the city of San Francisco, the other by Santa Clara County, against an executive order targeting communities that protect immigrants from deportation. Notice how I'm reading to you from the Associated Press, and they say things or they write things like protect immigrants from deportation, protect illegal immigrants from deportation. At issue here is not immigrants it is illegal immigrants i even saw uh a a senator last night from california i believe it was uh tweeting out that there's nothing uh there's nothing illegal about or that illegal aliens are not criminals i'm trying to find oh here we go uh uh kamala harris uh, she is a senator for california and she, she tweeted out, an undocumented immigrant is not a criminal. Well, no, an undocumented, an undocumented immigrant is just another term for an illegal alien or an illegal immigrant. And the illegal part of that, of that equation is, in fact, indicative of a violation of the law. Who knew? So, yes, an illegal alien, illegal immigrant, an undocumented immigrant, if you want to use their preferred term, uh, is, in fact, a criminal. Now, we could also say that anybody, you know, if you jaywalk, are you are you in the, involved in a criminal act? Are we all criminals? We could take this to crazy ends. But the purpose here, or rather, I, I think the reason it's worth pointing out is that now we act like this is not existing federal law. So the law matters when the law can be used by judges. And I, I'm getting all this this uh, social media stuff. People are sending me about how oh checks and balances. That's right. You know, Trump can't be a tyrant. You know, there's okay. Well, so the law matters when it comes to respecting a circuit court judge uh, who overturns an executive order or blocks an executive order. Then the law is sacrosanct. But immigration law, that doesn't really count. You shouldn't really be deported. You shouldn't really be punished. Uh, Federal immigration law is a suggestion. It's not really a law. This exposes... Once again, that the left is all about power. The, the law is irrelevant. The law is a tool for them for attaining 
and wielding power, but there's no principle that lies beneath it all. It's just a question of the utilitarian uh, application of the law in the moment for them, right? If it works for them, great. If it doesn't, well, then that's not a real, that's not a law law. That's something else. Here we are with the trial. By the way, I'm, I'm not even mentioning the uh, the wall yet, and there's so much that we have to get into. The, we'll get into the wall shortly here. But this is the breaking news of the day, um, other than the latest on the 100 days and the budget government shutdown battle that looms. Back to sanctuary cities here for a moment. These are jurisdictions that are refusing to assist law enforcement with federal uh, with the federal law. Uh, these are jurisdictions that are ignoring requests from federal authorities, in some cases just for information, which they are mandated under existing federal statute to provide. In some cases, places like California and others, they refuse. Uh, they refuse to be helpful. They refuse to even fulfill their obligations under federal law. And then when we talk about sanctioning them, in this case, the federal government is saying, or the Trump administration is saying, you either help us on this, or we're going to take away funding that you don't necessarily get, that we're supposed to give you only for the purposes of helping us on federal law enforcement. And they're saying, no, um, sorry, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to have any uh, consideration in the funding you give here. It's just the way it's supposed to go. Um, That this money is now the property of the uh, local authorities that are deciding that uh, federal, federal law when it comes to immigration doesn't really matter. Here's from part of the decision this is just a stay keep in mind it'll make its way through the courts it will continue on and it just came out now so i've been reading through this as quickly as i could before we came on air Uh, here's from part of the decision although the government's new interpretation of the order is not legally plausible in effect it appears to put the parties in general agreement regarding the order's constitutional limitations the constitution vests the spending powers in congress not the president So the order cannot constitutionally place new conditions on federal funds. Further, the Tenth Amendment requires that conditions on federal funds be unambiguous and timely made, that they bear some relation to the funds at issue, and that the total financial incentive not be coercive. Federal funding that bears no meaningful relationship to immigration enforcement cannot be threatened merely because a jurisdiction chooses an immigration enforcement strategy of which the president disapproves. Okay, that's what this judge is saying. Now we, once again, are going to see this make its way through the courts. Um, So the federal government cannot withhold money or the executive branch, which is in charge of law enforcement and law enforcement priorities. Remember, under Obama's time in office, He was exempting entire classes of illegal immigrant from the possibility of deportation, which is just another way of legislating their legality without actually being part of the legislative branch. That was okay. At least Democrats thought that was okay. That was fine. That was a a power that was acceptable to have in the hands of the president. Now you have a president saying we are going to enforce immigration laws 
and we expect local law enforcement that is receiving federal dollars for helping federal law enforcement, right? That that's the purpose of this. That's the purpose of the money that we're talking about. It's not by overall budgetary standards. It's not necessarily all that much money, but nonetheless. Um, and now you've got a judge saying, "No, sorry, you can't. You can't do that. You can't be coercive with that." So uh, there's going to be a battle that plays out here, and the administration once again has been stymied by judges. In this case, just like the the judge in Hawaii on the executive order, an Obama appointee, this judge, uh, William Oreck, I believe his name, an Obama appointee. This was the silent coup of the Obama administration within the judiciary, the rack and stack, the just insertion of left-wing progressive judge after left-wing progressive judge, thanks to Harry Reid's exercise of a nuclear option, Sure, now Republicans have pushed that through for Supreme Court nominees, but before that it was used so that about a third of the federal bench are now people that were handpicked by the Obama administration. Lifetime tenure. They're going to be around for decades. So it's a, a leave. You want to talk about the deep state, and I know people say, oh, Buck, the judiciary, it's, a che- it's checks and balances. Yeah, I know, but if you pack the court system with ideologues who don't care what the law says, but who just want to find a means of getting to the preferred policy outcome that they want, you will have people who create hurdles to the implementation of executive power that has been given to the executive by the votes of the American people. You've got unelected judges acting like little petty tyrants who get to determine Uh, what future major policy decisions of this country will be. Now, it will make its way up through the courts. I'm sure the administration will challenge this, just like they challenged the previous executive order. Well, they challenged the stay on the executive order on the travel ban. Um, But this is is troubling. This is where the left finds victory time and again. It only takes one progressive on the bench to stop an entire— executive program from going into effect they only they only need one and that's that's all that it takes at least for a while doesn't matter how many other judges find it perfectly legitimate and constitutional you have one who says nope and they bring these suits in jurisdictions that (laughs) in circuits out west um, that they know they're likely to find a sympathetic ear or ears depending on whether it's a panel of judges or just a judge that's all they need Maybe yeah, they couldn't they couldn't get Hillary. The the progressive left couldn't get their preferred candidate, but they think they can at least obstruct and deflect Trump policies from the bench. And with media pressure and time, maybe they'll take back some seats in the House and the Senate and they'll find their way back into power. That's the plan um, on the merits, which I haven't even really talked about here because the, the legality of it is is. Uh, is complicated. I've talked to you at length about sanctuary cities. Can the federal government force a local jurisdiction to hold somebody, not just share information about their status? There's there's definitely a federal law about that. Some places still don't do that, though, should be noted. Um, but can the federal government force local jurisdictions to hold somebody even after they would not be held in that jurisdiction because of their immigration status. I know this is kind of run around circles. Uh, it's lawyerly stuff. We don't have a we don't have a firm answer to that yet. Hasn't really been tested yet. I think it will be tested now. 
but that these jurisdictions all find themselves so very much wedded to the idea that illegal immigrants are uh, to be protected by local police and local jurisdictions, or at least to be assisted in every way they can be. You know, you already have the provision of driver's licenses. You already have young people, regardless of immigration status, going to school. You already have emergency rooms have to give care. You have Hillary Clinton, who wants to give, wanted to give when she was running, um, illegal immigrants access to Obamacare. That was on her website. I couldn't believe that didn't get more attention. You have all the provision of all of these benefits to people who aren't even supposed to be in this country under federal law. And it's just a slap in the face to all the rest of us who have to abide by the uh, myriad laws on all kinds of stuff and all these regulations. You know, the Obama administration and its executive branch architecture was churning out laws without actually consulting the legislature that had the force of law when it comes to criminal penalty, to financial penalties. And we were supposed to not just uh, concede that this was legitimate, but we better obey or else. And on immigration, well, it's not really a law. There, there the law doesn't matter. It just, they play games here. They want to have it both ways. When the law favors their policies, it is ironclad. They will bring the full force of the federal government to bear on that issue. Or if they have power in the executive branch, they will declare that this is now a priority for law enforcement. And when it comes to areas of the law that they don't like, they don't change the law. Notice that you don't have Democrats who have the courage of their convictions to say, you know, we should just let, let's just go with blanket amnesty. No, they like to play in this middle ground where they're always acting like they want amnesty. They want illegals to stay. They want more illegals coming into the country with their every action, meaning with every Democrat's act and decision in, in public. But they're never saying, well, we're actually going to change. the. We're going to push for a law that makes uh, that makes it just legal to come here. If, if open borders is such a great idea, why not make that case? No, they'd rather let Republicans be the bad guys. You know, Republicans be the big meanies here and they get to be the ones that just run around telling everybody how wonderful they are and how much we want them in the american family and who cares if they don't respect american laws oh okay well i guess that's the game we're in now and it's been the game for a long time sanctuary cities aren't going to change the obama administration is in the midst of a showdown i'm sorry the trump administration is in the midst of a showdown with them right now and i'm not sure how it'll shake out in the courts to be honest with you um We'll have to see. I want to talk to you about the wall. I want to talk to you about terrorism. Uh, we got the Hillary book uh, author on later about the campaign. All kinds of stuff. Might even get to talk to you about Bill Nye, the science guy, and his absolutely awful new show, which I managed to stomach five minutes of today. That'll be some fun later. 844-900-2825. The Freedom Hunt's rocking, but we got to take a break. We'll be right back. So they're not even clear with this sanctuary city uh, fight right now. The Trump administration, the executive order. You got this Judge William Oreck out in uh, San Francisco, U.S. District Judge, saying that the it's it's kind of a complicated decision that it, it says that anywhere that the remember this is just literally it's just one judge's opinion, man. Uh, but it says that. Anywhere that the law currently states there has to be compliance, there can there sh- can still be compliance, and if funding is attached to that compliance, 
then that's allowable. But the Trump administration is not via executive order allowed to demand an expansion of that compliance. And I know you're like, what? And I agree. It's it's getting way down into the weeds here. But it has to do with whether a a locality has to hold has to agree to a detainer. No one's saying that you should be out in the streets if you're local cops rounding people up based on immigration status. When somebody is arrested, comes into custody of law enforcement for an unrelated reason, it's two things. One, do you tell the federal government? And two, will you hold the person if the federal government asks you to because the federal government would like to detain that person and deport them? That's it. Um, and the first step, compliance is better. The second step, compliance is quite bad. And that's where you get into sanctuary cities and what they are doing or what they are not doing As uh, in this case. I also wish that there was just more honesty around this discussion. Uh, you hear all these different cities. You've got uh, who else is who else is getting in on this lawsuit action here? San Francisco and Santa Clara County. Um, Seattle, Massachusetts, and uh, some other places, too. So they're all saying, look, we're we're not going to be a part of this Trump executive order that wants more assistance in, in law enforcement over these issues. Uh, okay, well, why? They should have to answer that question for us. And the, the level of funding, uh, if you listen to these local governments, they say that as much as $2 billion a year for San Francisco and $1.7 billion a year for Santa Clara County are at risk. Um, and, the administra- and, and they claim that the administration jeopardized health and social service programs that were unrelated to immigration. Uh, but a, the Justice Department is saying that the administration's only withholding funds from three programs administered by, Jeff's, uh, by Sessions Justice Department or by Homeland Security. And San Francisco gets none of that money, and Santa Clara gets about a million dollars. So it's not even clear how much money is at stake or what money is at stake. You have different interpretations from the Department of Justice and from these various cities bringing suit as to what could be there. But, of course, the cities want to say, oh, we're gonna, it's going to be dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, if we have to tell the federal government when we've got an illegal, uh, illegal alien. Remember, it is, it's not just an illegal alien in general. It's an illegal alien who's already in custody for a crime least accused of a crime being held uh, because of a possible uh, criminal act and when you look at why they justify this or how they justify this they say that it's because here this is from the san francisco chronicle i want to go right to the closest source i can but this is all breaking in the last hour by the way that's why I, i'm i'm rolling with this as you're rolling with this we're just getting all this information and in. i don't want you to think that i've been you know running around partying here in, in New York City, drinking apple teenies all day or something. I mean, this this just came in. So I'm reading the decision and reading all the uh, back and forth on it as fast as I can in the last uh, 30, 40 minutes or so. Um, but the San Francisco Chronicle writes the following. Uh, all contend of the cities that are suing that their policies are designed to preserve trust between their residents and local police and thus promote public safety by encouraging immigrants to contact officers and re- report crimes without fear of deportation. No one is saying that if you if someone reports a crime or talks to law enforcement, they're going to be deported or should be deported. This is about people who are in custody. But that's not the way that they want to. That's the facts. And they don't want to talk about the facts. Let's talk about the wall, though. 
Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Build the wall. Build the wall. Don't worry. We're going to build the wall. That wall will go up so fast, your head will spin. And we're going to make that wall as beautiful as a wall can be. We're going to have big, beautiful doors in that wall. Walls are so easy. That'll go up like magic. Mexico will pay for the wall 100%. Mexico is going to pay for the wall. And who is going to pay for the wall? And we will stop illegal immigration for good. And we will have doors in that wall. And people will come into that wall, and they'll come through that wall by the tens of thousands. But they're coming in legally. Seems pretty clear that President Trump promised a wall. We just pulled together some uh, some audio there of the president saying just that. There would be a wall. In fact, as you recall at some of the uh, very festive rallies during the campaign, Trump, uh, or rather the audience, would say, build the wall, build the wall. The assembled uh, pro-Trump throngs were yelling about building the wall. But then today, when we're getting closer than ever, it would seem, to the possibility of that wall, and I also think wall is shorthand for barricade, barrier, uh, prevention mechanisms to thwart efforts at illegal border crossing, right? We could even come up with a long a long phrase and make a cool acronym out of it, but to, to stop people from crossing the southern border illegally. Um, that's what the purpose of this would be. Cartels, human smugglers, people that just want to come in illegally to stop all of that. That's what the purpose of this is supposed to be. And now this is at the center of the fight over funding the government going forward, or at least funding the parts of the government that are not on autopilot, that are that are non-essential. And it looks like today, well, I will allow Chuck Schumer to be the one who tells you where this all stands. But then I'll give you a happy statement afterwards. But here is Senator Schumer. Now, we Democrats have been opposed to including the wall in this bill since the beginning of the negotiations. There's no plan to make Mexico pay for it, as the president promised it would. There's no plan to resolve the eminent domain issues on the border. And the money is better used elsewhere. If the wall is $50 billion, you could use that money to give just about every American broadband. Give every American broadband? What is this is now the new thing that we're all going to get free Internet? Is that really that that's now the plan? That's an interesting plan. Um, But more to the point, if securing the border is something that the federal government should do, building a wall would help in the securing of our border. So why would we not be willing to spend the money to help in that process? You, You know, it's sort of like the climate change discussion You don't have to be an expert in, I don't know, immigration law or enforcement. You you don't have to even read very much about the various places all over the world, whether it's in the the Western Sahara um, between Morocco and Algeria or Saudi Arabia between Saudi Arabia and 
Yemen. Obviously, is Israel has a very famous barrier. I've been to that barrier wall, and it is it is very effective. Uh, I know Israel's a lot smaller, and everyone says, "Oh, but it's such a small area." But still, okay. Well, wall can work over a small area. Maybe it can work over a pretty big area. Give it a shot. Um, Trump promised a wall, and now it looks like the one billion dollar request to just get it started will be thwarted this go-round with Paul Ryan as Speaker of the House. Uh, people are asking questions now, uh, understandably so. And I come to you with frustration, um, but I also understand that this we got to play the long game here, and under, and the, the, we, are all, we are getting caught up in this. I get caught up in it, too, the 100 days. Oh, what has Trump done in 100 days? And what, what's his scorecard? And what's the grade we give him for 100 days? And I really care much more about what happens over the next four years. Uh, really, the next two years, I think, will tell us much of what we can expect. Uh, but I think we can all agree that there is a level, there's a degree of frustration um, that many on the right will or should have right now because it just seems like Republicans back down. They just back down. They're afraid they'll get blamed. It'll be bad politically for them. They will end up backing down anyway, even if they go forward with a government shutdown for a few days. And so they back down. You got uh, what Kellyanne Conway's out there saying, don't worry about it. Just give it some time. Now, maybe the wall is going to happen, everybody. Let's not get too crazy. Here's Ms. Conway. Why did he come to this conclusion? Because he's being more flexible by doing this so that the government doesn't shut down, but he's not going to get that $1.1 billion to build the wall necessarily, at least not this week. Well, not this week, but the president made clear just yesterday, Ainsley, building a wall remains a very important priority to him. He also reminded people that there's the flow of illegal immigrants over the border, but there's also the flow of drugs. And I don't really hear a lot of Democrats talk about that. The president's made very clear that drugs are poisoning our youth and others. He said it again just yesterday. Building that wall and having it funded remains an important priority to him. But we also know okay, that... Okay, but so uh, all, you had the Trump... Uh, sorry, you had President Trump, the Trump. I don't think he'd mind, actually, the Trump. Uh, you had President Trump say that the this is after the news came out today that it doesn't look like with this particular uh, continuing resolution budget battle that there'll be the billion dollars needed to start the building of the wall. Trump said the following, the wall is going to get built and we are settling or we are setting record numbers in terms of stopping people from coming in. I was just with DHS Secretary Kelly a little while ago and he said definitely desperately need the wall. The wall gets built 100%. Thank you very much. Soon. We're already hiring, doing plans, doing specifications, and the wall gets built. He's saying the wall is going to get built still. And I would like to take him at his word on this one, and I do. Now, you'll notice that the media throws in there a lot of, oh, where's the plan for Mexico to pay for this? Eh, Maybe Mexico pays for it with a tariff down the line. Maybe, you know, uh, this is not really of deep consequence to me or I think a lot of other people that were willing to uh, give the administration some leeway here to find a way to get this done. Um, Mexico paying for it uh, up front is clearly not going to happen. I think we've gotten beyond that. 
but we also now understand that this is an issue that Trump will be held to account on. There's no way to not build the wall without some people. And I don't mean not build it right now. It doesn't have to happen right now. Look how many decades have we gone without a wall where we've needed one. And now all of a sudden, you know, if it doesn't happen in a couple of months, we're all going to turn around and say, well, it's not going to happen at all. Trump is breaking promises. Trump is letting us down. Look at what's going on here. Um, oh, we actually, well, we have it. No, nah, that's, that's all right. I've, I've already, uh, we, we heard that. We heard the verbatim. Um, but the wall is also a major policy issue for the Democrats. Here, here's why. Uh because right now, the system in place allows them to benefit politically in every sense. There is no way in which Democrats do not politically benefit from a porous border. It's not a, a truly open border in, in that we don't allow anybody as a matter of law. Anyone can just come and stay. Although I think there are plenty of Democrats who would like that to be the case. But it's porous. It is Pretty easy to get in now. I know numbers have gone down, and that may be because there's an expectation of stricter enforcement by the Trump administration of immigration laws. Uh, But beyond that, I also think there are lower expectations that there will be an amnesty, at least not for the foreseeable future. But Democrats have been saying for quite a while that the wall is not something that would work. Well, why is that true? Why is the why is the wall not effective? How, how, think think about this. And you even have these cute phrases of these. Oh, well, show me a ten foot wall. I'll show you an eleven foot ladder. If that's the way we approach security now, um, I, I you know sh- show me, I, you know show me bulletproof glass somewhere. I'll show you a missile launcher. I mean, what what, what does that mean? So, so just don't have it, right? I mean, because it's not perfect, it's useless. That's the standard they're holding it to. Now, that's insane. You want reductions in illegal crossings. No one's saying that there will be no illegal immigration. In fact, I'm somebody who sits here uh, reminding everybody who will listen that you have a half a million visa overstays every year in this country, at least for the last complete year for which we have data. You had a half a million visa overstays. You need interior enforcement as well. You need workplace enforcement. You need to sanction employers that are hiring illegals and undercutting the wages of citizens in those sectors, in those professions. This needs to be a multi-pronged, yes, dare I say, comprehensive approach, but it's a comprehensive immigration security approach. It's not comprehensive immigration reform as amnesty, which is what we were being offered before. But I I think that somewhere in the minds of of major Democrats, the Schumers, the Pelosi's and all the rest, they must understand that if a wall does in fact get built and it works, it'll be demonstrable. It'll be in the numbers. We'll be able to show and we will know at some level. Now, of course, they'll argue then at that point, they'll delay and they'll try to come up with some means of suggesting that. They weren't just misleading the American people all along, but of course they were. A wall will work. I I ask you this. If you have to get onto your neighbor's property, uh, are you is it more likely to happen if you're going to if you're going to trespass in your neighbor's yard? Is it more likely to happen if there's a 10 foot wall or less? This is this is the most obvious stuff imaginable. And yet they look at us all with a straight face and say, oh, well. 
the border wall. It doesn't it won't do anything and we shouldn't spend the money. Now, Democrats are, are fiscal hawks. Oh, no, we can't can't spend money on that. You Chuck Schumer saying it's 50 billion. They're asking for a billion now. This would be construction jobs. This would be made in America. This would be something that could even go under the general heading of infrastructure, but they don't want it. Will Trump build this wall? Looks like we won't really find out until the fall when there will be another debt ceiling budget showdown, another fight between Democrats and Republicans over a continuing resolution to fund the government. And we will have to see at that point. We will have to see whether this administration can come up with a deal that gets it done or there's just the political will to somehow ram this through. I know the Democrats can filibuster, but we will have to see what is possible for them to uh, to pull off here. Team, we are going to hit a quick break. We'll be right back. We got Ken in Mississippi, WBU. Just, we just lost all of our calls. What happened? The board. Oh, okay. No, we don't. Sorry. We had a whole bunch of calls up, and then the calls just went poof. They disappeared. Don't know what happened there. Um, like, oh, wait. We got some back? Okay. Look at this. I'm telling you, it's, it's a... I'm not saying it's a it's a Soros Antifa conspiracy, but I'm I'm not saying it's not either. Jeff in North Carolina, WPTI, what is up, sir? Hey, Buck. Yeah, no. Hey, I'm with you on the wall. Uh, you know how you know Chuck Schumer and many of them have have used that ridiculous response that you show me a 30 foot wall and I'll show you a 35 foot ladder and and the ironic thing is we've got sound bites and video clips of them all saying, you know, in the past that, yes, we've got to have a wall. We've got to have that wall. But anyway, if my my view of what that wall should look like is it should be 30 feet high. That's, that's a big wall. That's like a, that's like a Game of Thrones wall. That's like that's hey. like. 15 feet wide at the top so we can put all-terrain vehicles that run from one watchtower to the next. And they're going to say, well, you don't know how far what watchtower is going to be. Hey, as long as one can see the next one, that's how far they have to be apart. Because I understand that some of that terrain out there is rough. And that wall is going to go through some... And there's going to be places where we can't have a, a, a serious wall. That's what I'd like to see. That's what I would like to see. And if they want to put solar panels on one side of it, God bless them. Go ahead. If that's what's going to sell the sell the job, go ahead. Put the solar panels on it. But, uh, I, I mean, I want a serious wall because this is what's going to happen, Buck. We're going to – they're going to – if we don't put that wall up, as soon as Trump is out of office – they're going to, you know, we will have already wiped our hands and said, okay, we took care of the border, but we didn't because as soon as Trump's out of office. That's right. The wall, the wall stays sort, sort of like uh, sort of like uh, Obama appointed circuit judges that are there for life. Uh, the, the wall will be there long after the administration exactly is over and you're right. not going to. Jeff, thank you. Thank you, by the way, my friend, for calling in from North Carolina. Um the, the wall will be there no matter what the next... I mean, you're not going to... Think about this. How, how could you have an administration come and say, well, we're going to tear that wall down now? Right? I, don't, I don't think that's going to happen. There's 700 miles of border fence that's already down at the roughly 2,000-mile border with Mexico, by the way. Um, there's different kinds of fence down there. There's 
chain link, post and rail, wire mesh, concrete barriers for vehicles. It depends on what part of it we're talking about. Um, but Trump has said, according to ABC News here, he wants a concrete barrier as high as 55 feet tall. That's that's a really serious wall, by the way. <laughs> that is a that is a Game of Thrones style wall. That is huge. Um, and then under the Secure Fence Act, the pedestrian border fencing completed in fiscal year 2007 was estimated to cost 2.8 million per mile. That's from the Government Accountability Office. It was constructed using mostly the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and the National Guard, and it already. Uh, and now they're saying a building a thousand mile wall could cost as much as forty billion dollars i think the the subway the new subway line in new york city that runs for like 15 blocks or something i'm i'm being a little facetious here but it costs like two billion dollars so if we can get a thousand miles of wall for 40 billion that seems like a pretty pretty decent deal um and when you add in the long-term costs of illegal immigration both as uh social social uh, welfare costs uh costs of criminal justice system you could consider it to be a long-term investment. But I also bring this up because Congress has voted in the past for a wall. There is already a whole bunch of places, or there, there's a, a good stretch or good stretches of the southern border that have a wall. And they are less likely to be places where there are illegal crossings than those that are wide open. Well, look at that. It's almost like a wall maybe would work. Um, and... Isn't it interesting? You, there are a lot of countries that are building walls, um, and they have worked so far. So the the evidence is that you, you could say on walls the science is settled. Uh, harder to cross with a wall in general than without one. So we can see if they are willing to get this done. I, I don't know. I, I don't know um, if the administration is going to be able to get around the Democrats on this one in the fall, but they are putting this one off. That's the latest we have, which also means that my prediction to you yesterday that the budget would not, or that the government would not get shut down because it'll just be business as usual and people are going to lose their lose their uh, their spinal stiffness on this one. That's looking like it's a pretty astute prediction, but it was also an obvious one, so I won't take too many bows over it. Let's talk about terrorism in just a few minutes. Stay with me. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Big payday coming up for uh, President Obama, although actually by President Obama's, former President Obama's standards, um... Not, I guess, really that big of a payday because he's getting, I forget how many tens of millions, like 16 million or something like that for the, no, wait, what was the book? How much money was he getting for the book? Um, I think it was, it was, it was some unimaginably, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. A buck, 16 million, 60 million, according to Business Insider, 60, not 16. Buck, you're such a silly goose. Sixty million dollars. Do any of you think that that the publisher is going to make that money on the book? No, or a book from him and and Michelle Obama, Mrs. Obama. Uh, no. So why pay them so much? Oh, because you know publishers pay the Obamas a lot because the people that run a huge publishing company want to be important and want to do something that gives them access to the Obamas and everybody around the Obamas, and it's. Really just about, you know, the elites scratching each other's backs here and taking care of each other. 
it's not really based on the free market in the sense that the market determines a $60 million. No, it's people that run the company, run the big publishing house, whichever was a Penguin House. They're um, just going to throw a lot of money at the Obamas because, because they can. Um, but putting aside the book, the $60 million book deal, I said this, by the way, President Obama and Mrs. Obama, they're going to be uh, astonishingly wealthy at a much faster pace and with much less uh, with much less selling of influence to foreign governments, which I guess is a good thing, um, than the Clintons. Uh, they'll be able to amass an enormous fortune. And uh, we were talking about this yesterday. Obama's going to be a voice in politics for the foreseeable. That He's not going away, and he's really going to be the go-to, I think. Until the Democrats have somebody that can be the standard bearer, you're going to hear a lot from, well, not a lot, but you'll hear from Obama at key moments. Anyway, four hundred grand is what he's getting for a speech at Cantor Fitzgerald, which is a mid-sized uh, New York City-based investment bank. They're going to pay him four hundred thousand dollars for a speech in um, I forget coming up in May or something. I forget what it's going to be. Oh, I'm sorry, in September. In September, their healthcare conference. But that's twice what Hillary Clinton gets. Hillary Clinton gets. Uh, a little over 200000 So Obama gets a lot more money than Hillary does. I bring this up for a bunch of reasons. One, the class warriors, Hillary, Obama, they certainly like making a lot of money off of their public service. We know that. And especially in the case of Obama, all the talk about Wall Street and holding banks accountable and all that stuff. Well... He's going to hold the banks accountable to the tune of 400 grand when he shows up and gives a, a speech written by somebody else for him in about 30 or 40 minutes. And uh, that's that's a nice that is a nice payday. Um, so that's interesting to me. But also, I just like to keep an eye on this. Uh, Hillary and Bill said that there was no connection between their international. You know, if we're we're, we're going to look back at this now because I, I want to force those serious big J journalists from some of the other networks and uh, most of the large newspapers. Um, I want to force them to have to defend just as they love to say, Oh, what did you hear what Trump said here? You're going to defend that. You hear what Trump said there. You're going to defend that. I want them to defend their statements that there was no connection between the Clinton's public office and the money that they were getting not just for the foundation, but personal money that they were being paid. For example, Bill Clinton getting paid $800,000 after he had been out of office for a number of years. His speaking fees seemed to go up when his wife was Secretary of State. Isn't that curious? When usually the further one is from office, the more the speaking fees go down. The most recent president gets more. So why would Bill Clinton be getting more money even though he's further from office? Oh, that's right. They were selling influence. We'll return to that again in the future so i just you know obama all about all about class warfare all about paying their fair share apparently paying your fair share for obama is 400 grand for a day not even a day an hour it's good it's good um, on top of the 60 million dollar book deal no one gets a 60 million dollar book deal by the way this is insane obama's get a 60 million dollar book deal do you think george w bush got a 60 million no i'm pretty sure also he I'm I'm guessing, and and I think I might have read this, so maybe I'm also slightly remembering. I think Bush gave all the money from the proceeds of his book to charity, but I'm I'm assuming that is the case. All right, um, 
I, I wanted to move. I'm, I'm switching topics here. Um, and I would encourage you all, if you wanted to, to follow along or to check, check it out later, um, go to bucksexton.com because I've written a post there that tackles this issue in some detail. It is one of the more frustrating parts of discussions that happen in the public on national security and uh, counterterrorism in, in particular. Because it keeps getting positioned the same way by the left and the, the, the same faulty arguments come up. And there's a recently released Government Accountability Office GAO report on countering Islamic, I'm sorry, no, countering uh, violent extremism is the name of the report, which already should let you know that there's something awry here. Countering violent extremism? What, what does that even mean? We're not even saying terror. We're counting violent extremism. Well, why such a broad-based, almost meaningless term? It really is a meaningless term. You could argue that all violence is extreme in some way or another when it's uh, illegal and illicit, right? So it doesn't really mean very much. But that's because this is one of these reports that come out and will be seized upon by people on the left who are completely dedicated to this idea that right-wing terrorism and not... Jihadism, which is my shorthand and many others from the counterterrorism community uh, will use it, um, for radical Islamic terrorism. Um, They want to believe that right-wing terrorism is understated and radical Islamic terrorism is overstated. And you'll see big websites, BuzzFeed and Vox and the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, major publications that will feature people who are editorial writers or analysts or others, whatever, who will will find different ways to suggest that Islamic terrorism is not that big a deal. Radical Islamic terrorism is not that big a deal. How about jihadism? And right-wing terrorism is a much bigger deal than we realize. Uh, the, The way they do this is they have broken down in this GAO report the number of fatalities from what they call violent extremists starting after September 11th, 2001. Well, isn't that an interesting date to exclude? Because that's like trying to analyze U.S. reaction to the or in the Second World War without including the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Right. Without Pearl Harbor, wow, America really, you know, getting going after the, the, the Imperial Japan pretty, pretty harsh, you know. Oh, oh, you mean oh, you mean they attacked us in a sneak attack and uh, killed many of us. And, you know, you cut out Pearl Harbor, not, nothing that follows makes sense. If you cut out 9-11 and you want to talk about counterterrorism policy, that's just that's just nonsensical. Uh, but they do this because, of course, then a lot of our actions, which are preventative in nature, Uh, don't seem to make as much sense. Uh, It doesn't allow... The left loves to talk about context, and they usually do it as a means of trying to change the subject. On terrorism, they decontextualize our entire post-9-11 posture by pretending that 9-11 is not a statistic that we have to account for in terms of deaths and loss to... uh, Well, loss to our security, the economy, stability, everything psychological perception of the U.S. going forward. Uh, They cut that out and then they say, well, you know, there's really there really haven't been that many mass casualty attacks on U.S. soil since then. And in fact, there are a lot of what they would call 
right-wing terrorist incidents across the country. And here, here's the number. Um, as shown in the figure, this is from the Government Accountability Report, fatalities resulting from attacks by far right-wing violent extremists have exceeded those caused by radical Islamist violent extremists in 10 of the 15 years. Of the 85 violent extremist incidents that resulted in deaths in September 12th, 2001, there we go, right? They, they count starting the day after the biggest attack in the history of the world, terrorist attack. Far right-wing violent extremist groups were responsible for 62 attacks, while radical Islamist violent extremists were responsible for 23 attacks. So roughly three quarters were, quote, right-wing extremists and one quarter were Radical Islamist extremists. And now you get people running around on the Internet and elsewhere saying, oh, we'll see. Radical Islam is not really the big threat. The big threat is right wing terrorism. Oh, okay. First of all, well, I could spend the entire show just talking about this and I won't. Um, And as somebody who has worked in counterterrorism, I'm not one of these kids who just went to a journalism program and all I've ever wanted to do is be on TV and be a journalist or even be on radio and be a journalist or whatever. I did counterterrorism at the CIA and then for the intelligence division of the NYPD, uh, which is the largest police department in the country, as I'm sure many of you know, uh, and is my hometown. I'm a, I'm a New Yorker born, born and raised right here in the city. Uh, the anti-anarchist terrorist groups in the NYPD or the anti uh neo-Nazi terrorist uh, groups in the NYPD, there are people who are assigned to those issues. They weren't particularly busy. This is just a a statement of reality. They didn't have uh, a whole lot of work to do day in and day out on those specific terrorism cases. There's just not a lot of it going on. Meanwhile, uh, from my own experience working in the NYPD, the Islamic extremist terrorist cases were plentiful. That shouldn't come as a surprise to any of you because you pay attention, you know what's going on. I, in fact, pulled the latest FBI FBI news about terrorism, specifically terrorism news, what the FBI calls it, and it's just ISIS, ISIS, Islamic State, ISIS, soliciting murder of U.S. military members, lying, lying and obstructing justice in a ISIS terrorism case, Life in prison for attempted possession, uh, attempted possession of a weapon of mass destruction and providing material support to a terrorist organization. You just go down this list. These are jihad, jihadist incident after jihadist incident from the last month. That, 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 that is the terrorism news in this country for the last month. I, I didn't find, I, mean, I might have missed one. I didn't find a single incident that the FBI brought a case forward with the U.S. Attorney's Office and didn't and that was anything other than jihadist terrorism but we're told that the real threat is from right-wing terrorism i guess my eyes deceive me it's just i'm lucky this time i suppose when i went searching on the fbi database that every incident of the last month was a jihadist muslim terrorist as opposed to a right-wing terrorist but we're told the right-wing terrorists are the really you know that this is what the smart people in dc and la and new york they say the right-wing terrorists are the ones we really have to be worried about Okay, well, what's a right-wing terrorist? According to this government accountability report, if a neo-Nazi gets into a brawl and stabs somebody outside of a bar, that may be considered right-wing terrorism. Now, it's murder, 
it's horrific and should be extreme punishment for somebody who does that. But ter- terrorism. Wow, that's this is a, another version of the debate we've had in the past over what counts as terrorism. And this is uh, the way the left comes at this. They will go to the FBI database. And, and in this case today, I'm talking about violent cases, but they'll even look at just uh, acts of political criminality and say that that's terrorism so uh, lighting suvs on fire if you're an eco-terrorist or you know hateful rhetoric scrawled on the side of a building you know they'll say that that's a terrorist hate crime the, the what they count as a violent terror or sorry as a terrorist incident varies dramatically such that someone who lets a bunch of laboratory animals loose so they can't be experimented on that counts as one under the way the left will look at these numbers and a very serious, you know, lethal incident like the Boston Marathon bombing, which killed two uh, or was it three um, and could have killed hundreds. That's counted as one incident as well. I mean, this is just why are they so dishonest? Why are they so disingenuous? And then we get into even more of the decontextualization of terrorism for the purposes of once again, it's all about making this point. Jihadist terrorism overstated. Right-wing terrorism understated. That's what they want us to believe. That is the exact, well, I don't, jihadist terrorism is not uh, overstated in my view. It's more or less where it should be in terms of our consciousness. But right-wing terrorism as a major threat against us. Anyway, I, I want to finish this line of thought on the other side of the break. Then I've got to talk to you about the um, Iran deal, the latest on that. I was going to hit it yesterday, but I wanted to bring on an expert in terrorism finance so we've got somebody joining on that we've got the author of the hillary book i've got three hours of show and we're already halfway through the show so i'm gonna need you to stay with me 844-900-2825 and also if you want to check out my piece sorry jihadism is a much bigger threat than anything right wing bucksexton.com my friends be right back all right we've got uh, frank on the line here frank welcome to the freedom hut Oh, Frank? Frank. Yeah. Bon- Hello? Bonjour. Hello, Frank. Hey, how you doing? Good. Um, I, you were talking about the terrorist acts and stuff from uh, the Politico. Yeah, uh, well, well, we're going to talk about Politico and the Iran deal and the release of uh, national security threat pol- proliferators in a few minutes, but I was talking about terrorist incidents in the U.S. just now from a Government Accountability Office report. Yeah, that was that was crazy. Uh, you know, yes. As an American, American, I'm getting tired, sick and tired of this propaganda that they spew out. And you know, I spent all day posting that uh, article from Politico about the Iran deal and new information's come to light. Mm-hmm. And you know, all these leftists on on you know they just deny it. They start posting memes, discounting the credit. It's fake news and all this. And I'm thinking. How brain dead can liberals actually be? Frank, I went on I went on TV at CNN when the cash exchange happened for hostages with Obama, and I was like, "This," and I said, "Guys, can we? This is a ransom payment, okay? When when the hostages don't get released until the cash arrives, uh, and there is an exchange that happens as a result of that cash." That is a that that is paying a ransom for hostages. That that, that is all that is. We, we, they can call it whatever they want, right? They can call it a a, a trip to to Never Neverland. I don't care. It is 
a ransom payment, and people at CNN, national security experts, so-called, were looking at me like, this kid's crazy. What? Oh, so I worked at the CIA. What do you know? It's like, dude, this is a ransom payment, all right? Can we, can we stop with the, oh, no, they, they, they thought I was crazy. And now we find out they weren't even honest about the releases they did or the uh, choice not to prosecute, I should say, a number of individuals um, involved in weapons proliferation, including possibly lethal proliferation efforts against our troops in Iraq, I might add. But, exactly. Frank, exactly. I, I find, I find the left disgraceful, as you know. It's disgusting. And I posted it on Facebook all day, you know, putting in links to the thing and making a comment and posting it. My account got disabled. Oh, well, that might have been for uh, posting too frequently, but I don't know. Um, but check out BuckSexton.com. That's a fun place where you can post and hang out, too, all right? Do me a favor, Frank. I will, buddy. Rock and roll, man. Shields high. Thank you for calling in. Um, speaking of BuckSexton.com, where we will be, by the way, selling fantastic T-shirts of all things Team Buck and Shields High and Freedom Hut. That's coming up. We're not there. We're not quite there yet. We're just we're getting all this stuff rolling. Um, I okay. I mentioned uh, this is all from BucksXon.com. The piece is sorry. Jihadism is a much bigger threat than anything quote right wing, which you know instinctively. But I want to give you all the arguments here. First of all, cutting nine eleven off the list is preposterous and dishonest when you're trying to account for terrorist acts and violent terrorist acts on U.S. soil. The fact that they don't count disrupted plots. I mean, the underwear bomber could have killed over 200 people on Christmas Day if that bomb had just gone off a little differently. But that doesn't even get counted here in the threat. How can you assess a threat and not look at attempt? You know, what would, would you if you were talking about the risk of a of a, in, a, in a foreign country of public officials and assassination? And there have been a lot of attempts on them. Wouldn't you count that as part of the risk or no? We're only going to count times when the bad guys are successful. They don't count disrupted plots. They don't count resources that are allocated specifically against jihadism. We have the TSA in place to prevent ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and other groups like them from blowing up planes, not because of neo-Nazis. And also, it doesn't take into account that jihadism is a strategic threat intended to destroy Western civilization and America with it. More at BuckSexon.com. I'll be right back. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields high. Welcome back, everyone. Big story from over the weekend, uh, published in Politico, of all places, about some aspects of Obama's Iran deal and the negotiations and the concessions made that we were certainly not aware of before. Uh, it seems that the administration told us that there was a one-time gesture of releasing some Iranians who were, quote, not charged with any terrorism or violent offenses, but from what Politico's reporting, were very important pieces in proliferation and in acquiring weapons for the Iranian state. These individuals uh, were national security risks. Uh, to talk to us about this now, we're joined by Dr. Jan Jonathan Shanzer, He's senior vice president at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and he was a terrorism finance analyst at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. So he knows this stuff backwards and forwards. Uh, Dr. Shanzer, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Buck. I'm sure you read this political piece, political piece, and we're just thinking to yourself, oh, my, uh, what what is the the so what here? I mean, the Obama administration, it seems like was pretty dishonest, uh, at a minimum, with the American people about what they were doing here. Uh, first, tell everybody what they were doing. Give, give us some of the specifics. 
Okay, so essentially what, what we've all heard about already was that the Obama administration did make uh, what I think we now recognize as a ransom payment to uh, to ensure the release of Jason Rezaian uh, from the Washington Post, uh, and that in the process uh, we also sent uh, roughly $1.7 billion in cash on pallets to Iran to ensure that this happened. What we're now learning as well is that there were, uh, I think it was 14, uh, 14 men or 15 men uh, that were um, that were here in the United States. They were in U.S. custody, and it appears that we've now, uh, the, or that the administration released them. Uh, some of these people were directly involved in sanctions busting or other uh, illegal activity, uh, you know, uh, sending uh, illegal antennas or IED equipment, a range of things. And it does appear now that the Obama administration let them off the hook to ensure the success of the JCPOA, otherwise known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear deal. And so the goal here was to ensure that we appease the Iranians. This is not a huge surprise to those of us who've been watching the administration unwind sanctions and, and I think really cough up concessions that the Iranians did not deserve. And it was why many of us were opposed to the nuclear deal. But we're now learning that there are just more and more specifics here that are cringeworthy uh, to many patriotic Americans. Yeah, the deal that many of us already thought was was flawed and showed Uh, Far too much of an eagerness on the part of the Obama administration to just get a deal uh, looks even worse than it did before. This is a, a, a quote from the political piece itself. When federal prosecutors and agents learned the true extent of the releases, many were shocked and angry. Some had spent years, if not decades, working to penetrate the global proliferation networks that allowed Iranian arms traders both to obtain crucial materials for Tehran's illicit nuclear and ballistic missile programs and, in some cases, to provide dangerous materials to other countries. Uh, This this would seem like something that we should have been informed uh, at the time instead of finding out after the fact. That's right. And, you know, I mean, look, uh, at the end of the day, the president does have uh, enormous power. um, And we like to think about that firewall between uh, the Justice Department and the White House. But at the end of the day, the president can... Uh, issue waivers and, and, and get cases dismissed. The judge ultimately has to agree to dismiss, um, uh, but the president also can commute sentences and can wipe records clean. Uh, this appears to have been the case here, as I understand it, uh, within the Justice Department. Uh, there, uh, let's just say there was some frustration uh, resulting from this. And, uh, you know, I mean, these are people whose job it is to uh, to bring these proliferators and sanctions busters to justice. And they watched, uh, you know, they, they essentially watched the minimization of their job uh, by a handful of people in the White House for a deal that was, uh, again, deeply flawed from the outset. One of these individuals, according to this piece, uh, Amin Ravan, was charged with, quote, smuggling U.S. military antennas to Hong Kong and Singapore for use in Iran. U.S. authorities also believe he was part of a procurement network providing Iran with high-tech components for an especially deadly type of IED used by Shiite militias to kill hundreds of American troops in Iraq. Uh, That means, if this is true, and if that is in fact what happened here, uh, Jonathan, it would seem that they let go somebody who has the blood of American servicemen on his hands. That's right. Uh, and, and this is actually really not surprising. I mean, one of the things that, that we've been talking about here at FDD for quite some time is the fact that, uh, th- that we're about to make a deal uh, with Boeing and Iran Air. 
that Boeing is about to, uh, to sell um, dozens of aircraft to Iran Air. And the amazing thing is, is the Obama Justice Department issued an indictment, I believe it was 2010, maybe 2011, uh, indicating that, that Iran Air itself was involved in the shipping of IED parts uh, to Iraq and, uh, and that, that, that it was responsible for the death and maiming of U.S. servicemen. So what we're seeing here is a pattern at this point that we're, looking, we're willing to turn a blind eye, or the Obama White House, was willing to turn a blind eye to terrorism and even the killing of Americans, not just the killing of Israelis or, or Europeans for that matter, but for Americans, they were willing to turn a blind eye if only they could just get this nuclear deal, deal done. And it really, I think, belies a certain amount of desperation on the part of Obama to get this deal done um, and, and really a willful blindness to the kind of uh, dangers that the deal might pose when we left the non-nuclear issues off the table, the terrorism, human rights, and other violations that should have been part of uh, a comprehensive deal if we were, in fact, to sign one. So the just to, just to look at the scoreboard here, the Iranians got uh, what, how, $150 billion unfrozen over the course of the deal. Is that is that the, the proper number? I've heard different numbers. Well, that's right. There was also the JPOA, the interim deal, where hundreds of millions of dollars were being released per uh, per month, um, and I, I believe it ended up coming up to somewhere around 1.8 billion. So, 150 uh, million was released, and 1.8 billion is the total. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, 150 billion was released with a B, and then there was an, uh, a smaller amount of. of okay, that's what I initially thought. I was like, well, I got to get my millions or my billions straight. So it was 150 billion, and that's unfrozen. How does that work? That's not, well, there were um, uh, escrow accounts uh, that we had uh, made for the Iranians. Basically, in 2012, we froze all oil and made sure that if the Iranians wanted to use that money, that they would have to access accounts from places like China and South Korea and Turkey. And if they wanted to buy humanitarian goods, approved goods, they could. But otherwise, those funds would sit in those accounts. What we did for the nuclear deal is we released all of the funds from those accounts, uh, and, and they've gone back to the government of Iran. And uh, as, as we've now found out, we also have sent them uh, some of it in cash, and uh, we put them back on the uh, SWIFT system, as it's called. This is an electronic transfer system that will allow Iran to bank anywhere around the world, so it means they can move this money as they see fit. And then we also have relaxed sanctions such that you now have European uh, companies that are now coming back into Iran and investing. And so there is that additional boost that we can't quite quantify yet. So there was all the money that we've returned to them. And now there is what they're going to get from the kind of the natural economic growth that comes from being taken off the sanctions list. So this is just exponential growth for the Iranians. And again, it's, it's incredibly impo- important to point out here that they are still a state sponsor of terrorism, so designated by the State Department. They still have a 311 from the Patriot Act slapped on their banks to ensure that the, the international community knows that this is an unsafe jurisdiction for, fi- uh, for financing anything. So the thing is, is that none of the behaviors have changed at all. We have just decided to give them all of these perks for simply agreeing to mothball their nuclear program for about 15 years. Right. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What are the concessions that they have made? Uh, They lose 70, uh, 97 percent of their stockpile of enriched uranium and give up 14,000 of their 20,000 centrifuges. That's 
that's a from a left wing side. I see that's supposed to be what the downside is for the Iranians. Is is that accurate or is that that's that's accurate? And you know, I mean, they they've stopped operating out of certain facilities, and uh, you know, but the, the the real downside, and we talked about this last week, Buck, is that you know they're still mastering the delivery system. They're still working on ballistic missiles. They're still uh, mastering the centrifuge technology. Uh, and so essentially what it means is that when they are ready to get back to the business of spinning large numbers of centrifuges, enriching uranium at a higher rate, they're going to be uh, really right on the cusp of a nuclear weapon. And there's going to be very little that anybody can do to stop it. In the meantime, also, they haven't had to curb any of the other malign activities that they've been engaged in uh, since the Islamic Re- Republic was founded in 1979. In other words, all the terrorism all of the uh, the unrest that they're creating around the region, uh, all of the human rights violations at home, their cyber activity, none of these things have stopped. They did not have to agree to do anything uh, on those counts. And that's why the deal was so terrible, is that they're going to have uh, that nuclear program in a decade and a half. And meanwhile, they're going to be a lot richer and they're going to be still the number one state sponsor of terrorism, short of full regime change in Iran. What do you think the Trump administration should do, starting from where they are right now? Well, I think the first thing is to get an assessment of how the nuclear deal um, it has been implemented. And I think, you know, so what we've seen so far is that they have agreed that, that Iran has kept to the deal, but they need to be in- incredibly vigilant. Um, we need to address the ballistic mis- missile issue. Uh, that I think there needs to be new uh, resolutions at the UN, perhaps new sanctions internationally on the ballistic missiles. We cannot allow them to continue to develop this technology for the delivery of a nuclear program. And then on top of that, we need to start to issue new non-nuclear sanctions. So going after their support for Hamas, for their support for Hezbollah, for those Shiite militias that have attacked U.S. servicemen in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, we need to take a look at their cyber activity and, and sanction them for that. We should probably go after the entire Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC as it's known, which is their number one sponsor of terrorism within the country, but also controls roughly 30 or 40 percent of Iran's economy. So these things, I think, are all good first steps. Um, But there needs to be a whole government approach to uh, essentially thwarting Iran's nuclear ambitions. That the uh, Obama administration really, we sit, we saw this from the uh, from the Politico piece. The Obama administration just did not want war, did not want the confrontation, and so they kicked the can down the road. Uh, I think they would even say that that is the case. That no one in the administration says that they've stopped the nuclear program. What they've done is they've paused it. And we now need to have a uh, a White House that is determined to end the program. Uh, and to ensure that Iran never gets a nuclear weapon, because I can tell you it would be one of the more uh, destabilizing elements to ever hit the Middle East, which has never exactly been stable in the first place. Dr. Jonathan Shanzer of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Uh, Great to have you, Jonathan. Thanks for calling in. Anytime. Team, going to hit a break here. We'll be right back. So the president's daughter, one of his daughters, uh, was over in Germany at the W20 summit in Berlin. And here is uh, what's getting the headlines today. Here's part of how she was received by that crowd. He's been a tremendous champion of of supporting families and enabling them to thrive in the new reality of... You you, you, you hear the the reaction from, from, from the audience. 
hissing, booing, moaning. So Ivanka Trump, who has a role as an advisor in her father's White House, um, uh, I tend to, well, we shall see how that plays out. Uh, But I just am struck by what a difference you see in the reception, not just from the media, but the reception that a member of this uh, first family receives. And she's also a public figure and an advisor to the president. So this is different than, you know, president who has a 12 year old daughter or son or something. I understand that. Uh, But the way that she is uh, heckled by this crowd or booed by this crowd, hissed at, uh, just goes to show you that even though it is well known that she does not have a particularly conservative outlook, um, she is uh, treated with scorn by some. And I just have to think to the the difference you see between the propping up of adult Chelsea Clinton, who is on the cover of magazines, dressed in it looked like it was a parody and and I I don't mean that her that's not a knock on her appearance so much it's it's a knock on the presentation the way that they there's so much airbrushing a leather jacket and this you know this giant smile and on variety they're giving her a lifetime achievement award uh for Chelsea it's there there are no achievements her achievement is being Chelsea Clinton um Ivanka has been a part of the Trump organization and a public figure and spokesperson and executive for uh, many years now. Um, I'll leave it to you to decide how much of that you choose to revere or admire and how much of that you think is just a function of being a Trump. Uh, But at least she's been out there doing stuff. Uh, And yet she's treated this way uh, by... A number of onlookers at the W20 summit in Berlin. Um, she was also asked about her role as first daughter. Here's what she said. What is your role uh, and whom are you representing? Uh, your, your father as the president of the United States, the American people or your business? Well, certainly not the latter. And I am rather unfamiliar with this role as well, as it is quite new to me. It has been a little under 100 days. So, doesn't really have a clear answer to the question, but I also think it should be noted, are you here as a representative of your business? That's that's meant to be a knock. That's snide. That's not a, a fair-minded question. That's taking in this notion that Ivanka is out there on... Uh, 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 representing the United States, but really representing her business. It, it is always lost on some of these media types that the president and his daughter and his sons, or his daughters, he has more than one daughter, uh, are not in such desperate need of cash that they would, uh, I think, do many of the things that those in the media believe that they're willing to do. Uh, and that there's this corruption that's at the heart of every... Trump action and enterprise, um, I I just still don't see it. And I know that people look at me and they just shake their heads and, oh, how do you not understand what's going on here? And they also said that to me about the Russia allegations, and I'm still waiting on that, although we will talk about the latest with General Flynn in the next hour. And I, I got to tell you, it's not, it's not good. Um, I went through the process of getting a security clearance and went through those forms and 
I can tell you, just as I said, I would never have been, not only would I have not accepted a paid contributorship to RT, uh, I certainly would not have left off payments from a foreign government, which is the allegation right now, on any official government background or financial disclosure forms. That's a pretty big one. That That is not really... Now, that doesn't mean that all the other stuff about Russia is true at all, and I still don't buy that, but... You know, we, we've got to call balls and strikes here, and you, you can't you can't fill out a, f- a form that says this is the you know this is I I believe this all to be true and accurate to the best of my ability that misses huge bright red flag glaring stuff and payments from a foreign government when you're about to become the national security advisor that qualifies that's a that's not good so I'm wondering if there, there maybe there's an explanation for it that I don't know uh, we will see. But I, I was just taken aback a little bit by the reception that Ivanka gets in a foreign country. Could you just think of this? For a Would you ever have thought for one second that if Michelle Obama went to the W20 summit? Buck Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. There have been two presidential cycles during which Hillary Clinton was, by many people, expected to be the next president of the United States. In fact, some even thought she might be inevitable, but it wasn't to be so. Uh, what happened? Amy Parnes joins us now. She's co-author of the brand new book, Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. Amy, thank you so much for calling in. Thank you for having me, Buck. Uh, let's start with the most basic, obvious question here. What went wrong? <laughs> uh, well, so my co-author and I, are uh, we spent two years working on this book, And uh, we tried to piece that together. You know, at first we started, we thought that she was going to win going in. um, And then we started seeing little problems along the way um, and red flags and some internal uh, turmoil. And so we... um, we basically pieced it together and we thought it was a messaging problem and some mismanagement. And um, because of that mismanagement, there were some people who were um, elevated and some people who were demoted. And uh, there was the creation of what was um, kind of a board of directors type thing that was called the Super Six, um, where um, six different people kind of managed various facets of the campaign. And all this kind of happened under wraps, um, at largely unreported. So I think uh, there, there were a lot of problems there. Yeah, so th- those give us, uh, that's a, a good sense of some of the, the general problems that came up and places where there was clearly room for improvement, to put it mildly, in the, in the campaign apparatus. But let, let's start with strategy, and then I might ask you about some individual personalities. Uh, in retrospect, what was, the, what was a failure with regard to strategy for the Hillary Clinton campaign? I think a big one was messaging, as I just mentioned, and another one was the over-reliance on data and analytics. Wait, can, can you tell us, so you said messaging, okay, messaging how? What, 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 do you, what was wrong? So dating back to her speech on Roosevelt, Roosevelt Island that she gave in uh, June or July of 2015, I think she basically... Um, even internally, her advisors were saying that there was no core message. There was no 
simple message for why she was running. And that was problematic. And she even brought in uh, former Obama speechwriter John Favreau to help uh, work on it. And he was even frustrated and left kind of before uh, the speech was even done. He was just exasperated by the process because he was used to working strictly with President Obama and maybe one advisor. Did, did he have to go through the gauntlet of, uh, what was it, the, 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 the high council or whatever it was you just said a second ago? <laughs> There were, uh, no, that was, uh, the Super Six was created The later Super on. Six, yes, sorry, yeah. go ahead. But, um, but basically, he, was, um, he wasn't used to so many cooks in the kitchen. There were too many people kind of um, moving the speech and, and no one kind of steering the ship. Um, and that's why there were too many ideas in the speech and it got kind of convoluted. And, and even now, uh, when advisors kind of hear it, they, they point to that speech as very problematic because... You know, as one person told us, anyone in the Democratic Party could have given that speech. It wasn't, it didn't. Yeah, it, it was memorable for how unmemorable it was. That's what I remember uh, about it. So, so that's a good, a good place to start with the problems with Hillary's campaign. Uh, but usually one would think that this kind of a book, at least my impression would be that you'd have a candidate who has ideas about what he or she, in this case she, should be all about. And then they get pushed into different things by advisors and there's that give and take. Did, did Hillary, did, did she have a strong idea for what she was about and others talked her out of it? Or did she just think, I'm Hillary? Like, of course okay. I should win. It's funny. We talked to one senior advisor after the campaign who basically said, I would have had a reason to run or I wouldn't have run. And that's actually the name of chapter one, the title of chapter one, um, because even and this is coming from a senior advisor inside her campaign who still was sort of grappling with that message, didn't really understand what she stood for. And she once again became the inevitable candidate. Um, and that was something that kind of haunted her in 2008 and something I think she was trying to uh, get away from in 2016 and trying to kind of learn that lesson and and that uh didn't w- work out quite well yeah, in- inevitable turns in, or inevitable turns into entitled or at least it, it did in the narrative from a lot of folks including some of the the more mainstream press outlets that, that i think tended to be favorable towards hillary i think they said she's running because she's hillary and she thinks she's going to win because she's hillary um who is really a lot of gender supporters actually people who kind of never came around for her in the general election, um, and she could have used their votes. Oh, yeah, that was a fascinating dynamic. I remember sitting on panels over at CNN and saying, uh, so so we just are all okay? Like, I know I'm not part of your team, guys, but you're all okay with just all the super dele- delegates go to Hillary. Why? And, and there was this, you know, nobody wanted to hear that, except for the Bernie supporters right. who were like, yeah, why? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, there, there wasn't that enthusiasm. I think some people were very excited about her candidacy. Obviously, there's a, there are women of a certain generation who wanted to see the first female president. Um, but, but there wasn't that excitement that was generated by the Sanders campaign and across the aisle on the Trump side, too. Now, I read some excerpts from your book, and in one of them, it seems like uh, Hillary comes up, this was after the Michigan primary, uh, Michigan primary, which did not go as planned for Hillary. Um, she seemed like she was stern with staff and then Bill Clinton came on the line and just kind of laid into everybody. Tell us what happened there. Oh yeah, that was, um, that was actually before Michigan. It was, um, in the, the email server summer, um, in 2015 where they were really frustrated that they, their message wasn't getting across. And in one call in particular, um, they they were both on the call for this one and and she voiced her frustration and he basically told the staff to get it together um and uh to do their jobs 
Um, and, and that was a memorable call, and, and that was one that kind of stuck out um, for, for a lot of people um, who, who had to be a part of it. Um, the other moment I think you were referring to was after Michigan. That's um, what I meant, yeah. Yeah, she had just suffered this loss. Um, obviously it was, um, it was frustrating to her because she had spent so much time in Flint, Michigan. She actually left New Hampshire to go to Flint and spend time there. And, you know, and she ends up losing in this kind of embarrassing moment. And, uh, so the next day as she's preparing in Miami to, uh, take the stage, she's preparing for a debate. She kind of, she loses it in, in one moment and, and basically goes off on her staff and says our message isn't getting through and we're not communicating effectively enough and you know this this was this was pretty well into the primary and she's still struggling to kind of understand what's happening right well the, well, the whole notion that she would be getting mad at staff because our message isn't it's her message and and one of the things that i believe comes across in the descriptions of of your book and, and i would like to get to it and read it as, as soon as i can but uh is that there was really no ownership of the campaign with Hillary. It's, it seemed like it was this consensus-driven campaign that didn't have a consensus, but that, uh, like you said, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. And ultimately, there can only be one top chef, if I'm going to borrow a, a TV analogy here. There can only be one, and it's Hillary. And it doesn't sound like she ever really embraced that role of being in charge of how this campaign was going. No, and she, you know, she is the candidate, and so the, some of the blame does lie with her, obviously. But I think that one of the big problems was that she doesn't, she didn't understand what was happening in the country, and she kind of vocalized that in one scene that we have in the book with uh, confidant. She's flying. This is post New Hampshire, and she's flying and having this candid heart-to-heart conversation with this longtime advisor, and she's basically saying, "I don't understand what's happening in the country. I can't wrap my head around it." Um, and, and this was problematic for her that, you know, deep into um, the primary season, she's still kind yeah, of... That's her job. Her whole job is to understand what's happening in the country and to, and to be able to emote and communicate and discuss and problem solve or at least promise to problem solve that she would even that that would even be a thought that crosses her mind. Amy is 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 pretty astonishing, honestly. And, and I'm, everyone, yeah. I'm up front of this. I'm not favorable towards Hillary as a candidate, but just looking at this from a, as objective a perspective as I can, that's pretty amazing. I want to ask you also about who in the campaign really who really mattered, meaning who wielded power inside the Hillary apparatus. We know Huma, super close advisor, but who else was in the absolute upper echelon of power? pushing the different decision-making processes that led eventually to her loss. Well, it's interesting. I think you saw a, a shift. Um, you saw power kind of removed from Robbie Mook and given to Jake Sullivan in the middle of the campaign, and that was done kind of secretly. Um, Jake Sullivan is this brilliant um, policy mind, um, and he became kind of her de facto chief strategist. Um, sometime in the primary. And, uh, and Robbie was basically told to focus on analytics and data, which was ultimately her downfall because you had people like President Clinton coming in and, and pushing back against this um, analytics team and basically saying, I'm campaigning, I'm hearing different things on the road, you're telling me to go to these places, but I think I should be in these places. And he he isn't being listened to for whatever reason, um, but he was sounding the alarm and he was frustrated by the way things were going. So I think there was a lot of that. And I think, you know, I think analytic, analytics for good and bad played, um, it was a, a big role in this campaign. How much did Hillary's um, decisions around the email 
situation, investigation, scandal. How much of that factors in, in your, your book? What did you find out about it? And, and was there a sense among her advisors that she uh, bungled that? Because as somebody on the outside that was very critical of Hillary Clinton, she gave me and a lot of others plenty of room to work with on that. She was just not upfront about what was happening with that email server. No, and she she you know had to get out in front of it and talk about it even before she launched her candidacy and her campaign and she was talking about it in March of 2015 um a month later she actually officially says that she's running for office and it kind of looms over her campaign for much of that year into the summer and then finally in September months later basically half a year later she finally ends up apologizing for it. And I think there was a a big tug of war in the campaign also over this issue, because I think a lot of advisors wanted her to get out ahead of it and to address it earlier. And um, I think the Clintons kind of felt in the beginning like they had done nothing wrong and that they shouldn't apologize and that, you know, if, if they apologized, then it would be giving too much and that people would make too much of it. And so there was sort of this, um, this, ongoing conversation internally um, about what should happen. And ultimately, she ends up apologizing. And it takes her even then a few tries to, you know, first she sits down with Brianna Keeler of CNN. She can't quite get there. Finally, she ends up with David Muir of ABC News and and finally apologizes. Um, But even that took her a few efforts. And so it it was a month-long process, and it obviously loomed over the campaign for much longer than that. Yeah, until the very end. It it was an issue up up until Election Day, and and with the decision not to prosecute the Loretta Lynch meeting with Bill Clinton on the tarmac, and then later on Comey saying the investigation was reopened, even whatever it was for a few days, still played a role. If you had to give... Um, if you had to give retrospective advice to the Clinton campaign, out of curiosity, I mean, you spent two years with them, you studied this, you talked to a lot of the folks involved, I'm assuming basically all the major players, what, what, what should they have done differently, or was it not the campaign, it was the candidate? I think it was a little bit of both. I think, you know, she had pretty much the smartest minds working on her campaign, so it's hard to to um, fault them entirely, obviously. But I think, as I said earlier, I think she's partly to blame. I think they did some things in the beginning. Part of it was dealing with her image. You know, there was this rollout. Um, they, they gave an interview to the New York Times that basically talked about how she need, they needed to basically show um, more heart and soul. And so that was a part of it. And that was what they called an unforced error. You know, suddenly she's on all these late night talk shows and she's on Ellen DeGeneres and she's trying to show what AIDS say is like a very gregarious person internally you know um they always talk about hillary clinton how funny she is behind the scenes and is, is she is she greg- i mean is she gregarious in person everyone has a story about how she's so funny but she's so guarded in public um and that's, that's uh, that <laughs> i find that a little a little sketchy but all right yeah well, i'm just i'm quoting no i know i know i'm just saying for for me that doesn't yeah. pass the smell test <laughs> Yeah, but um, no, so so I think they wanted to sort of, they wanted that um, that appearance out there and, and they wanted to change the narrative and so that hurt them. And um, and so I think it, it was a combination of things. It's hard to just, you know, she's very quick to blame Comey and Russia for her loss. I, I definitely think they, they were factors. I think there was, there were many more factors as we detail in the book from message to strategy to over-reliance on analytics and even fighting the last battle, I think. Um, she she was sort of, uh, they were very quick to kind of 
fight the last war. And, and I think that had something to do with it. Real too. quick, Amy, before we let you uh, get back to all your book tour stuff, uh, when you're signing books, do you have a lot of, uh, do you have a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters who show up just kind of nodding their head at you saying, told you so, or just, just wondering. There are a few. There are. A few. <laughs> I figured there might be. <laughs> Amy Parnes, co-author of the brand new book, Shattered Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign, available on Amazon and in fine bookstores everywhere. Amy, thank you so much for your time and good luck with the book. Thank you, Buck. I appreciate it. All right, team. Phone lines open 844-900-2825. Hitting a quick break and we'll be right back. Scott in Florida on WFLF. Welcome to the Freedom Hunt, my friend. Hey, Buck, man. We love it. It's awesome. And, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you, you cut off, my friend. What did you say? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can now. I'm sorry. Uh, we love your show here in Northwest Florida, man. You're great. Thank you so uh, much. Last guest and the interview. It was awesome. Uh, man, I'm just uh, sort of uh, not in despair, but... Man, we control everything. These guys can't do anything yet. Meaning, I mean, there have been so. Okay, let's. And I, 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 I had Scott. I, I gotta come. I gotta come clean here, as you know, because it was on radio. I had a day where I started to get a little frustrated with the administration, and I needed some friends and uh, and and family and and colleagues to to sort of uh, get me to buck up a little bit, if you will. Pardon the. Uh, the self-referential pun, um, and and just chill out a little bit and give it a little bit more time. Um, and I think that's and also keeping in mind Gorsuch on the Supreme Court. And it can't be an excuse for continued inaction and broken promises. But at least it's not Hillary is a is a powerful data point to keep in mind. Right. I mean, Scott, I'm I'm keeping it real. That's 100 percent. baby. you're right. Yeah. I, Trump is trying just as hard. He's pushing that rock up the hill, and he can't get nobody behind him. I don't understand. Yeah, well, I, I, Paul Ryan and the Republicans, uh, I, I blame them mostly for the, the health care debacle. I mean, what what's Trump? People say, oh, well, Trump was trying to sell it. Well, what's he's the president. What's he going to do? Say, yeah, the guys in Congress who've got these staffs that, that the American people are paying for who have had years, like seven years, to get an Obamacare bill ready. Uh, what they're what they're offering is crap. So, uh, you know, let's not go forward with it. I mean, he could have done that. But think about the political capital he would have burned with the Republicans in Congress. Did we lose him? Oh, I was having fun talking to Scott in uh, Northwest Florida on WFLF, but all right. Yep. Scotty, there, buddy, or we we, uh, we lost you? Yep. I think he's gone. Scott, thank you, man. Shields high. For some reason, we're having some comms uh, issues here, but okay. Um, what is, there's a, what the, the, I mentioned the stuff about the dairy and can, uh, Canada dairy industry, Wisconsin, ultra-filtered milk, which gets me kind of excited. I, I, I love... Whole milk. I think that that's what people should drink. I, I don't understand this fact. You, you look at, I mean, to borrow from Ron Swanson, skim milk is water that's lying about being milk. You look at the difference in calories between people. I, I go into, there's a lot of fancy coffee shops here in New York City. You go in there and you order, people say, I, I want a 2% milk latte. And I'm like, look, it, you know, at least go whole or go with almond or skim or something. But 2%, that's like, ni- that's neither one side or the other. I mean that's like the it's like the Bernie Sanders is an independent of milk. It just makes no sense, you know. You got to go with one or the other. And I think that's uh, that's important to keep in mind as we're 
No, it's not important, Buck. But I just like to talk about milk and chocolate, two of my favorite things. Oh, and I'll get to that with Bill Nye, by the way. There's a they, they brought chocolate into the conversation. I will not forgive or forget that easily, uh, my beloved chocolate and whole milk. Um, some of you are probably thinking, like, wow, Buck, you're taking years off from your life by uh, going by constantly going for the highest fat foods. But you know what? You only live once, my friends. Uh, all right, on to Trump and some protectionism, maybe. I brought this up. He's talking about Wisconsin and dairy farmers and Canada. And yeah, Canada has been playing a little unfair with dairy farmers. And Wisconsin dairy farmers are, are annoyed about this. It's been going on for a long time. And you have, what was a Commerce Secretary uh, talking about this. They are a close ally. They're an important ally. They're generally a good neighbor. That doesn't mean they don't have to play by the rules. What do you mean by generally a good neighbor? Well, things like this, I don't regard as being a good neighbor, dumping lumber. And there's a feeling in the dairy industry that they were a little bit abrupt in the action that they took the week before. So we're going to get a little rough on some trade issues, it sounds like, with Canada, which is uh, sort of a surprise, I think. Uh, We've got the dairy farmers up in Wisconsin who are sick of Canada throwing all their dairy muscle around, eh? Um, And, yeah, I know. My my Canadian team, Buck listeners, please forgive me. Uh, And then you've got lumber getting brought into this because they may put tariffs on lumber. Here's what I'll say about all this. Because people are looking at this, they're saying Trump... Tariffs, protectionism, this is a bad idea for us. It, with, with Canada, you're operating more or less in a safe space, right? We're not going to have a trade war with Canada. We'll, Canada's like our, our little bro to the north. We'll, we'll figure it out if there's a little bit of a misunderstanding over dairy. or And this might have an influence on the administration's perspective. I'm trying to find a silver lining here. For how they deal with China, Mexico, and other countries where trade relations are a little more acrimonious, right? But... It does kind of seem a little, a little bit, a little bit like we're getting, getting a little frisky, getting a little, uh, a little feisty with Canada. This administration is over dairy and lumber and trade. Who knew? We've got more coming. Stay with me. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty, where you're the party, and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. All right, Team Buck, welcome back. We're joined by uh, Chuck Ross to talk to us about some of the news of the day. Chuck is a reporter at The Daily Caller. You can see his latest at dailycaller.com. Chuck, great to have you, sir. Hey, Buck. Thanks for having me. All right, a lot of uh, a lot of CNN coverage, at least, and some other places, but I've seen CNN getting very excited about this uh, with regard to the Michael Flynn foreign money uh, disclosure issue. Tell everybody what's going on here, and then let's get into what it could mean. Yeah, well, I guess the the biggest development today um, was that um, the House Oversight Committee received some a briefing from the Defense Department about Michael Flynn's payments that he's received from uh, outlets like uh, Russia Today, which is a Russia-controlled news outlet, um, and also some payments he received for lobbying from the Turkish government. And um, so there's kind of two angles of this. First off is that, you know, uh, Flynn may not have properly disclosed some of the those payments whenever he was re-upping his security clearance, which is, you know, it, it, Chairman Chaffetz, Jason Chaffetz, the Republican, uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of dinged uh, uh, Flynn over that and said that he may have possibly broken the law. 
Um, the other angle on this, which CNN was touting heavily, which I think they're kind of off base on, is that uh, the white they they were accusing the White House of stonewalling on the release of some of these records. And um, uh, Sean Spicer today said that you know perhaps uh, that that since Flynn was only there for three weeks or so, and all of this occurred before uh, Flynn entered the White House and even joined the administration, uh, that uh, you know, they don't really have the records to, to turn over in the first place. So there, you know, there's a lot of different angles on this. Um, some of them are legitimate. Some of them are kind of being blown out of proportion, uh, by the media, I believe. We have a Russia hearing coming up, right? Russia collusion, Russia hacking and, and Trump surveillance, all of the above. Those are a hearing, uh, what is it? Two weeks from now? Uh, yeah, May 8th, uh, a Senate subcommittee is gonna, gonna be hearing that. And uh, Lindsey Graham, uh, I see this DailyCaller.com piece here. Lindsey Graham previews tough questions for Obama officials about Trump surveillance. Like what? Yeah, uh, Graham uh, had a, has a pretty good take on it, I think. Uh, so they're going to be questioning uh, former Director of National, National Intelligence, James Clapper, and then Sally Yates, who was um, a top Justice Department official. Graham said today that he wants to ask Clapper about a an apparent inconsistency in something he said. Um, last month, Clapper told uh, Chuck Todd that he was not aware of any FISA surveillance warrants against Trump Tower or the Trump campaign. Um, but since then, it's been reported uh, by the New York Times and Washington Post that uh, the FBI obtained a surveillance warrant against Carter Page, the infamous Carter Page, the, the Trump campaign advisor. Um, so Graham said he wants to ask about that inconsistency. You know, he wants to know if Clapper knew about this FISA warrant. Um, and then that would lead into questions about the breadth of the surveillance that the Obama administration conducted against the Trump team, you know, if there was any. Um, and then he wants to um, he wants to ultimately ask about the Susan Rice unmasking of Trump advisors. Uh, he wants to ask. Um, Clapper that he would know and also Sally Yates who is kind of a controversial figure now she would also potentially know about um, whether Susan Rice you know improperly revealed the identities of Trump advisors um, right before the uh, the inauguration and uh, switching gears here for a moment I know Daily Caller is keeping an eye on this story as are a lot of outlets uh, Berkeley has been sued for canceling Ann Coulter's speech. Do we know, uh, what are the latest details here? Um, the latest, well, as of yesterday, um, yeah, so you had two groups that were, uh, that had, um, coordinated the, the appearance for Ann Coulter. Um, they're suing, saying that, uh, Berkeley unilaterally decided to, uh, cancel this appearance, which was supposed to have you know, taken place, uh, I believe on Thursday. Um, you know, and the school said that they couldn't provide the proper uh, security for this. And, and the, the student groups, one of them is the Berkeley College Republicans, said that uh, you know that's not a that's not a legitimate excuse. That it's you know it's a publicly funded institution, and they need to provide the uh, protection for someone like Ann Coulter. They're saying that the school didn't want to host a conservative speaker. Um, and also, you know, the, the police there at Berkeley said that they couldn't, uh, that some groups like the anti-fascist groups, the masked groups of people wearing all black and everything, 
that they had received threats from them. And uh, so the group suing Berkeley are saying, you're giving these Antifas, as they're called, uh, the, the heckler's veto. And um, it's, in, in, you know, impeding their First Amendment protections. Chuck, what are you going to be uh, following so, next? What can we expect in the next few days? Well, um, anything related to the uh, Obama administration's uh, surveillance of the Trump team, any developments in the, uh, the Russia-Trump uh, probe, um, we're, of course, going to be building up to that hearing on May 8th, which will probably create quite a bit of news. So, Chuck Ross, reporter of The Daily Caller. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Buck. All right, team, 844-900-2825. You want to call in, chat about things, uh, anything on your mind, do give a ring, and we're going to hit a quick break. Be right back. A couple of uh, updates of uh, what we were just talking about before. One is that Ann Coulter, a friend we've had before, a friend of the show we've had on before, uh, is planning to speak in a public plaza at the University of California at Berkeley. This is going to be interesting. Uh, They're bracing for, quote, massive protests and potential violence. She'll be speaking, this is the university, she'll be speaking at Spruill Plaza, and that's going to be happening Thursday afternoon. Oh, we'll be be on the uh, air during this speech, most likely, I'm guessing. So we might even be able to, if there's a live, well, we probably can't put a live stream up because there'd be a lot of cursing from maniac Antifa protesters. But we'll we'll be able to probably give you uh, updates, uh, depending on exactly when the speech is. I have to check and see um, when they've moved it around. I'm assuming if it's Thursday afternoon, though, at a minimum, we'll be able to tell you about it right after it happens if this turns into the melee on campus that some think it might be. Um, but yeah. This is going to be quite a scene. Spruill Plaza is the site of the uh, Berkeley Free Speech Movement protests of the 1960s. So, as the Washington Post is writing it here, it is, quote, both symbolic and logistically challenging for the university because anyone can be there. The university would have metal detectors for an inside event and other ways to search for weapons, but that'll be much more difficult than an outdoor space. If someone brings weapons, there's no way to block off the site or to screen them, Dirks said. Uh, Dirks is the, I don't know who he's, oh, he's the Berkeley Chancellor, Nicholas Dirks. Um, He said that uh, the Black Bloc, there are no, people keep referring to the protests. How many, Black Bloc is a tactic. It is not a specific protest group. It is wearing all black popularized by anti-nuclear protesters in Germany in the 1970s, taken here. First time you would have seen it in uh, large-scale protests would have been the, uh, what was the WTO protests in Seattle back in, I guess, 99, I want to say. I forget. Um, But they're expecting some black bloc Antifa there, and we'll see. Um, Yeah, Ann Coulter's going to be speaking outdoors at Berkeley. This could get nuts. Good for Anne. You know, you you got to give her credit. She is, um, she is fierce. She is fierce and super funny, by the way. Uh, Felix in Pennsylvania, W E A B. What's up? Hey, Buck. Hey, I got. I agree. Agree with you. I love Ann Coulter. Yeah, you know, she's real. She's really. She stands her ground. 
And, you know, the reason I'm calling is I am a little bit disappointed in Donald Trump. Now, I'm, I was from day number one, 100%, you know, 10% Donald Trump. But I kind of wish that he would have stood his ground on this one and don't let us down, fund the wall, and then let Swamp Schmuck Schumer shut it down. <laughs> Throw that line in the sand for him to cross. Um, yeah, I, I will see. They say they're going to do it next time around. They say they're going to do health care next time around. They say they're going to do taxes by the fall. So we have a lot of hurry up and wait right now with the some major administration uh, agenda items. So we'll see. I, I can't tell you one way or the other. I am hopeful and I am supportive. That is my position right now. Um, I, there's nothing that I find outrageous. There's nothing that is a a betrayal of a promise as far as I can see yet. And we've also got to keep in mind that there is a lot uh, that is arrayed against this administration from the media to the Democrats to you know, progressive judges to a whole bunch of stuff. So we'll, we'll, it's not not an easy lift, but they this uh, uh, Sisyphean task will hopefully get done. Hashtag Greek mythology. Thanks for calling in, Felix. Shields high, man. Good to have you. I want to talk a little bit about. So I, I took a I need a little break today. I did some writing. It's up on BuckSexton.com. There'll be more of that happening in the in the uh, days ahead, too. It's uh, fun to be able to post stuff on the site. It's a great place to go for any members of the team. We'll be uh, updating you with stories throughout the show. Anything you hear on the show, by the way, that's a really excellent story, you can expect we'll have uh, posted it and, and and do some analysis and writing on it as well. Um, very likely, at least, that we'll have it up by the time you go check it out. But I took a break to go watch a little bit of Bill Nye Saves the World. Now, I don't like to be a hater in the media business because it's very easy to... Uh, to be overcome with, as all of us are, we have to, you have to be on guard against envy or, uh, you know, being a hater in, in the modern parlance. Not that I'm looking to get a science show, but I'm just saying, you know, you don't want to say, oh, guy's got a new show. I'm just going to, you know, talk about how terrible it is and, and tear it all apart just because. But in this case, it's warranted because Bill Nye's show is really terrible. Uh, it's first of all, it's called Bill Nye Saves the World. I turn it on, and within five, I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating, within three minutes, this guy, and the whole thing is so awkward, and it really has the, it's about as comfortable as watching somebody on, like, public access in a in a small or mid-sized city somewhere who just has no idea what they're doing. I mean, it is not professional in feel or look to start out with. I only watched about five or ten minutes of it, but I, in the first three minutes, you start getting a lecture about climate change right away. And as, as I've been telling everybody, and this has caught on now, others others have finally gotten with this as well. Bill Nye is, a, is, is not a scientist. He's somebody who, pl- he is literally somebody who plays a scientist on, t- on TV. He has a Bachelor of Science degree in mechanical engineering and has some patents and worked as a mechanical engineer. Look, if, he, if Bill Nye was going to go on TV and show me, you know, why the choo-choo goes fast or how the internal combustion engine works or, you know, I'd, I'd be a little more interested. Uh, again, an undergraduate degree in a science field or in, in a physics engineering field is not really what we would consider, I think, to be expertise. Um, but he's also worked in some, uh, you know, he's worked on some of these projects and, and okay, fine, he's got some patents. But he's talking about climate change right away. It's like the church of climate change is open and Bill Nye is the uh, the superstar pastor or something. I mean, he's just 
making it up as he goes along. And and I didn't get to see this, but this was... I'm going to have to go back and watch some more of the show. It's so bad, by the way. He's not even a scientist. Why does... He, this guy goes on TV and shuts down other people and is really condescending and smarmy and nasty about it, which is why I don't mind going after him a little bit on this stuff because he doesn't seem like he's a nice guy. He's really... Really comes across like a jerk on TV, at least. You know, it's not. It's always, you know, well, I'm a scientist and I'm among the scientists, and you're just some idiot who can't understand anything. It's like, dude, you're really not not that impressive. Um, but he's he has this program. I didn't even see this, but but play the Bill Nye clip if you would, please. Female or male, gay or straight, pink or blue, we were taught to see these as binary. Now we're realizing it's more like a kaleidoscope. And this stuff isn't just for adults. Parents know this already. Kids explore gender, expression, attraction before they've ever heard of a spectrum. By three or four, most kids identify with a gender, and it doesn't always match the sex they were assigned at birth. And a person's gender identity may change over their lifetime. It should be up to you. Sure, this might make things confusing for those who insist everyone pick an M or an F. But people, we have to listen to the science. And the science says we're all on a spectrum. No, it does not. Uh, Where's the science that says that? I pointed out to you the other day that you had this, uh, this transgender equality Twitter account, which has a large following and is verified, so I feel like it's as legitimate as a lot of other news and information sources these days, where they posted something about this, this woman talking about uh, how she's a science teacher and all the different ways that gender can be non-binary in in the well it starts out with in the animal kingdom and then it talks about humans and and different uh physical characteristics that can arise in some circumstances that may okay so then it's about physical characteristics then it's not about psychology or emotional uh attachment to one gender or the other so that, so then we can draw the line there right because if it's about science if they're going to use that as the means of shouting down everyone else and calling them bigots well, then it's about what is observable, because science is, is about what is observable. It's not about what one feels. But no, really, the transgender movement is about feelings. Gender identity is a feeling. It is not a physicality. It is not a physical expression or an expression of a physical reality. So wh- why is he saying this is the science? Says who? I mean, not only is this guy not a scientist, He's going on TV and saying wildly unscientific stuff. I mean, without kidding around. And I saw this part of it on my own. I was watching this for a few minutes today. And I I really like Netflix. Netflix, why are you doing this to me? First, you have Iron Fist, which was terrible and unwatchable. And now you got Bill Nye. You're you're hurting me, Netflix. Um, But within a few minutes, he is talking about how because of climate change or one of his correspondents talking about it because of climate change there'll be fewer milk producing cows which means that soon we'll have chocolate shortages and i guess also we'll have milk shortages i'm like you're going right into my wheelhouse right away nye with this milk shortage chocolate shortage you're 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 cutting me deeply with this stuff and that's unacceptable because it's not true it's just not true but uh, this guy gets a show it's it's appalling and astonishing all right, uh, please go to BuckSexton.com. Also, would love to get your email address there for when we have the newsletter up and running, which will take uh, some weeks, but we are working on it. Uh, also, Facebook, uh, Facebook.com slash BuckSexton. And tell a friend about the show, please, wherever you are across the country. Be like, yo, check out this guy. And they'll say, well, how do I listen? Say, well, just start this way. Go on iTunes, type in BuckSexton with America Now. Click subscribe. Until tomorrow, my friends. 
Shields high.